series, in case you did not know, is that it provides spirit-led clarity around certain emphases, convictions, and directions coming out of the life of our church, coming out of the life of this community, and moving us into the future, into this new season that we are entering into. It also is meant to be built off of prior vision series that we have had over the last couple of years as well. To recap those, two years ago, we launched our Rhythm of Life, uh, built off of the Benedictine rule of life from the 500s, this ancient idea of a trellis, habits and practices that kind of guide us in a specific direction that orient us to the person of Jesus and his work for all of life discipleship, because discipleship is not a program of the church, it is the lifeblood of the church. It's not an arm of the church. It's all of life in the church. And it impacts every bit of who we are. That's why our work matters. That's why what we do with our neighbors matters. That's why our thought life matters. Our bodies matter. Everything is interconnected in terms of formation to the person of Jesus. It's not relegated to a one-on-one Bible study once a week. That's intentional and that's part of it, but it's every bit of our life. And if I'm honest... Much of what we have done in the Western church over the last 100 years or so has been to create programs that require a minimum interest in discipleship to Jesus. Minimal. And whenever we create a low bar for discipleship, that becomes the ceiling for maturity. So in this next season, I want to, we want to call you higher if you don't have a minimal interest in following Jesus, it's going to be tough for you. It's going to be a challenge. I read a quote the other day in a book that has been very transformative for me called The Renovation of the Church. And in it, a couple of these pastors make this statement. They said, one of the hardest things for pastors to do is to manage losing people because they finally realize what Jesus is fully asking of them. And he's asking for everything. He didn't just go to the cross so you don't have to. He went to the cross so you can. And you can be resurrected by dying. Detachment is a key emphasis in the history of the church. Abandonment to Christ. You either abandoned, you either abandon him or you abandon to him. So that is my desire and my call, and this rhythm of life helps us in that. I was very uh, encouraged because I have a friend in Kansas who has a church just outside Kansas City, and they actually adopted our rhythm of life for their community, and they're using that as a practice and a key emphasis, which I thought was very encouraging. But I do feel like, friends, that the future church in the West is going to look more and more like a vowed order or a commitment to a way of life rather than just checking a box. That to be a member of a local community is actually to 
vow to a specific order or a rule or a rhythm of life. Now, last year, the vision series that we looked at was exploring stage theory, stage development, specifically in our formation to Jesus, and the various stages we go through in our movement towards maturity, because that's what we are after. And those were moments with God, managing behavior, mission with God. We talked about the wall or the dark night of the soul and this movement inward leading to modeling the life of Jesus. And it's kind of a spiritual cartography, like where am I in my maturity to Jesus as it pertains to these various stages. So rhythm of life, then we have our stages of the journey last year. And this year, our 2023 vision series is entitled Holy Ones. Can you say that? Holy Ones. The subtitle is Be Made Whole. We will be looking at this notion and this call of being holy, being made holy, and moving towards perfection or wholeness or completeness. And I'm incredibly excited about it because over the last few years, I personally have felt a strong draw and a sense of calling to give much of my life to reclaiming and reimagining this lost and misunderstood way of holiness. And based on data from the Barna Group, a majority of professing believers in the United States are either ignorant of the meaning or don't desire to be holy. For most of us, it feels stale, outdated, smells like grandma's house, and it carries the baggage of legalism from the 1950s. Most of us associate holiness with legalism. We're going to address that later in the teaching series, how holiness is not legalism. But I simply cannot get over the fact that there is a constant call throughout the scriptures to be holy. Both in the law and in the Torah and in Jesus and the New Testament writers. It is all throughout the library of the scriptures. So instead of doing away with a central tenet of our 2,000 plus year old faith, 4,000 if you go into the people of Israel, as well as a marker of Jesus himself, which we identified last week, I personally find it compelling and urgent for us to bring it back. What things from the 80s or 90s do you wish we could just bring back? Are there certain things you're like, we got to bring it back, baby? Right? Might feel kind of old and stale, but you're like, let's bring it back. We're kind of doing that now, right? Like, vinyl is back. Okay? By choice. You know, it used to be like, that's your only option. You know? Now it's by choice, right? Cassette tapes, bring it back. Okay? Baggy jeans, bring it back. Gauchos are never coming back in Jesus' name. We're bringing this stuff back, right? Uh, I read the other day that uh, maybe Taco Bell brought back the Mexican pizza. Like, oh, yeah. Bring it back. There's actually a song by DJ Unk that goes, bring it back, bring it back. 
So as it pertains to holiness, I want us to bring it back. Bring it back. Okay? It is necessary for us as the people of God. See, I got to loosen you up a little bit this morning. Bunch of stale Presbyterians. Anyway, <laughs> loosen up. All right? <laughs> I also think that we need to rediscover it afresh for our time as well. Because holiness is a catalyst for revival. Confession leading to consecration is required for awakening. No movement in the history of the church for two millennia has ever not been about holiness and consecration. I'm all for us being a confessional community. That's the first start. But confession leading to consecration requires awakening. And these next few weeks will be opportunities for us to reenact or to consecrate ourselves and to see it as a catalyst for renewal and revival within the people of God. As I mentioned a second ago, holiness is not about legalism. Um, quick note on that, and we'll unpack it more, but holiness isn't primarily a legal term, but a relational term. It has moral and ethical implications because it is relational. To be in relationship with another human being requires morality, requires a level of of ethics. But legalities remove the relational and heart component of holiness or the command center of your whole self, that which directs your life, the heart or the will, the spirit. And Jesus is concerned with transforming your whole person, beginning with the heart. But our morals and our ethics and our way of life does in fact reveal our heart's disposition. Jesus is famous for saying in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, you will know a tree by its fruit. We should be able to look at brothers and sisters and know if they are maturing in the way of Jesus or not because of fruit. Dead fruit or no fruit. Or good fruit. Holiness is actually, by definition, beautiful and captivating. Which we will also explore in this teaching series. C.S. Lewis famously said, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it is irresistible. It is irresistible when you meet the real thing. And I want us to rediscover the real thing because we've lost it. The people of God in the West have lost it thriving across the world as a doctrine and a way of life, but we have lost it. Can I make a clear statement for us this morning? The people of God are meant to be weird. We are meant to be utterly unique, distinct, and different from the world. I genuinely don't know why we struggle with that. If you look like the world, then you're not holy. We're, we're, the world's going to do what the world's going to do. Like, and that's not my job to play any kind of, you know, Holy Spirit. But I'm going to tell you what, as the people of God, we're going to be weird and different if we follow Jesus. So we're going to get weird over the next few months. Okay? 
there comes a moment in all of our lives when we are faced with various existential questions about God, humanity, life, death, meaning, and morality. Anybody in the season right now, you're wrestling with existential questions. Some of you are like, I'm not going to actually raise my hand. I'm embarrassed. No, no, seriously. Anybody wrestling with some existential questions about God, meaning, life, death? Okay, good. Very good. Some of you are like, I am. I really am. Oh, God, man. What am I doing here? Oh, right? Is God real? Uh, you know, be honest. It's okay. We want to be a place where we can foster questions. Um, but most of us, if we're honest, are distracted all of the time. So we're not even aware if we're wrestling or not. But somewhere deep in the recesses of our being, we will wrestle with these existential questions. But one of the most essential questions that we ask at some point in our life is the question, who am I? Who am I? Even more so, we live in a culture that doesn't wait for you to ask the question. It poses the question to you. Who or what are you? all of the time, and uses advertising and media to answer for you. Keep in mind, we're all trying to evangelize. There is no neutral ground. It's not just the church trying to be a witness. It's everywhere. Look at modern advertising. Look at the commercials over the next few weeks. They are trying to form you in a way of thinking about the world. It's actually interesting. If you go Google, I encourage you, go Google Edward Bernays. Edward Bernays was the uh, kind of founder of modern advertising in the early 20th century and happened to be the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He took the ideas of his uncle and implemented them into advertising and marketing. We are being formed by the world around us, and it begins by this question of who are you? Who or what are you? And it also seeks to answer the question. We are all being formed in some way. It's interesting, if you Google the question, who am I? I did that this week. Who am I? There are 25 billion results. If you Google the question, who is Jesus? It has 2 billion results. You can see who takes precedence in our time. This is a fundamental question of 2023 and the postmodern era that we live in, this question of identity. I went back to the Google Ingram viewer because I found that to be such an interesting tool to kind of get a, a feel for our time. And the Ingram viewer shows the increase in the word identity across literature over the last few hundred years. And look at the increase around this notion of identity over the last 200 years or so. We are obsessed with this question. And given the results, 25 billion to be exact, and despite being told to be true to ourselves, we are actually still left wondering who our self really is. Despite this notion to be authentically you, it seems as though people are still confused with who they actually are because they're constantly asking the question. You know why? Because being told, be yourself, is a liberating statement, but it doesn't help you find out who you really are. It doesn't. It feels nice, but it's not helpful. So we are obsessed with this question, still asking, who am I really? Now, there are various definitions of identity. 
But at a basic level, it is that which you are one with. That which you are one with. And we tend to have a hierarchy of identities. It's not just one. We have multiple identities. And they're, they're, they, they function a bit like a hierarchy. There's actually a very helpful resource from um, the late Adrian von Kahm um, that's this identity pyramid or this pyramid of identity influences. He just calls it a form tradition pyramid, which is just meta-language for an identity pyramid. And it's this notion that we have various identities that stack up in a certain degree of hierarchy in our life in terms of influence. And it's actually helpful for us to chart this out on our own. So I would encourage you, take time in your journal at home this afternoon, this week, to Create a pyramid and write in, in layers, what aspect of your identity is the most foundational and rate it. Being a husband, being a mother, being single, being a worker, making money, being a Christian, being a Democrat, being a Republican, whatever it is, a certain desire that you may have, um, prestige, popularity, whatever it is, rate it in this pyramid. It's actually very helpful, I think, for us. But we all have a base layer that all other identities that we have are built off of and submit to. Because keep in mind, when you come to know Jesus, it isn't as though your whole identity is just done away with. It's just reordered in this hierarchy submitting to our identity in Christ. But this base layer is not just true things about ourselves any longer, but the truest thing about you. The truest thing about you. And the question that we have to ask ourselves in this time, people all around us are asking this at a ground level. Is my base level identity sturdy or fragile? Is my base level, foundational identity, the truest thing about me when the doors close and it's me in this world, is it sturdy or fragile? We have to ask that question. Much of our cultural identity formation is based on feelings and or desires. Deeply Freudian. Deeply Freudian who's been debunked by much of modern psychology, so I'm not even going to go there. Okay? Even Carl Jung's like, no, okay. Anyway, like much of our moment is based upon our desires and our feelings and our identity formation. Not that that is a bad thing, but there is this sense that you are what you feel. You are what you desire. And the only problem with this is that our feelings and our desires change. You're an emerging person. You're always becoming something or someone. You're not a static object. You're a subject that's dynamic. You're always changing. And these desires and feelings actually are infinite. We have an infinite amount of desires. So if our identity is based on feelings and desires that change, we actually never have a rooted sense of identity or who we are. We are in a constant state of identity crises. Always asking, who am I? Am I actually me right now? I don't know. Have I found me yet? I don't know. We're always asking this question. On top of that, we have to have external validation 
so that when we go into ourself, apart from the world, apart from our community, which, by the way, is a very uh, modern Western sociological phenomenon to try to uh, separate yourself from your community to define yourself, foreign to the rest of the world and history, and probably is the root of much of our anxiety and depression and loneliness in our society right now. But when we go into ourself, we find our authentic self, so to speak, as though it's easy to find, present it to the world asking for validation. But if we're always changing and always asking for validation, all of this produces is ex exhaustion and burnout. Gen Z and millennials are the burnout generation. We're burned out, exhausted trying to figure out who I am. I mean, you talk to people who are 20, 21, 22 years old who are exhausted and they're talking about identity crisis and they're still in college. This is part of our time and, and, and part of our moment. But here's our little turn in the teaching. The way of Jesus and the Christian tradition has a different approach to identity formation. Very different approach. People of our culture are defined by chosen identities. People of the way deny self and have identities chosen by God. We have to be able to see the distinct difference between the narrative of our society and the narrative of the history of the church and the people of God, going back into our Jewish heritage. But because all of us are people of the culture, we need counterformation. You and I need counterformation. And the given identity for the people of God is threefold. Here's time for you to take notes. The threefold identity of the people of God are as image bearers, children, and saints, or holy ones. Back to 1 Peter 2, 9. Which, if you want to talk about somebody who really had to struggle with identity formation, just go look at Peter's life. He says, but you are, you are. Underline that, highlight that, write it big in your moleskin, whatever it may. You are a chosen people. The Greek word is genos. It's connected to the idea of generation. You are a chosen generation, a chosen group of children, a chosen people, a royal priesthood or image bearers. The original calling for humanity was to be priests, representatives into this world and to God, imaging God in the world. And you are a holy nation a holy ethnos, or saints. Most of us may get the notion of being a child of God and maybe even being an image bearer. We may kind of understand that at a basic level. But most all in this room today, I would imagine, are unaware that as the people of God, we are chosen, selected, drafted, set apart to be saints, or holy ones. If you are a person of the way of Jesus, and you're a believer today, you are a saint. You are a saint. Anybody listen to um, 
Jackie Hill Perry and Preston Perry's podcast at all? Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, what, 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 was, what does Jackie Hill Perry always say? What up, saints and ain'ts? Right? She gets it. Some people are saints, and some people ain't saints. But if you're part of the people of God, you are, in fact, a saint. Eight different New Testament letters open by the writer reminding the audience of their identity. Who they are. The phrase it's all throughout is God's holy people. God's holy people. Eight different letters in the New Testament. To God's holy people. Sanctified and set apart as God's holy people. The Greek word is agios and it appears hundreds of times in the New Testament. And it intros majority of these letters reminding the audience who they are. Now you might be thinking this morning, I thought that saints were venerated dead people by the uh, Orthodox Church or the Catholic Church throughout church history. Yes, you are in fact correct. But you and I, when we were made and called holy, we became living and breathing saints. We became holy ones. We were given a new status, a certain posture, an identity. Now this new identity is given to us when the Spirit of God comes into our human spirit and begins restoring our corrupted, self-centered, diseased, traumatized, and traumatizing nature. And when this happens, it is the beginning of holiness. It is the beginning of holiness. You and I were born with a corrupt nature. Sin is not just something that's out there. It's actually a human condition that we are committed to as as humans born into this fallen, broken world. If you don't believe me, hang around a two-year-old. Taking toys, that's mine. You know how many times Sayla in the last week has said mine? It's a result of the fall. It's called original sin. Now some of you are like, no, 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 no. This is natural. She's just fighting to survive with food as part of kind of her biological makeup and evolution. I'm saying, hold on a second. She's fighting for Play-Doh. Not for chicken tenders. Okay? It's called original sin. She's broken in some capacity. Bent towards self-centeredness. There is a dis-ease in all of us that requires healing. Healing. So, this process enters us into the process of sanctification or being made holy. We are given a new command center and a new commander in our life. In order that we may come alive to be reborn, or the Reformed folks would say regenerated, to be regenerated and renewed over time. Again, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you were saved, and you, you are saved, and you're being saved, and you will be saved. It's this process that's happening over time. And it's all empowered by the grace of God. The justifying grace of God, the prevenient nature of God's grace that woos you and draws you to then entering into the sanctifying grace where God cleanses you and, and shapes you and renews you from the inside out. 
reordering your loves, reordering your desires, reordering your identity, shaping you, molding you, transforming you, healing you from the brokenness that you have created for yourself and that you have created in the world. You have been traumatized by people and you have traumatized. Human beings are fascinating because we can be the most like um, beautiful creatures on the face of the planet. We're utterly unique. We're creating things and we are you know, trying to, to impact people and love people and serve, but we're also so broken and are so capable of destroying all that is. We are an interesting mix of beauty and brokenness. And God comes in to restore us and to renew us in that beauty over time. And sin, quick note on sin, sin is relational and moral separation from God. That's what sin is. It's primarily about separation from God, from self, from others, and from the created world. And sin, by the way, guys, is not just bad. Sin is deadly. So we must be made alive and made one with Christ Jesus. If there's anything I want you to understand today, sin is deadly. It's deadly. It is not full of life. Go live a life of debauchery and see how it works out. We know too many people, that's their story. That's their story. It's deadly. Jonathan Tremaine Thomas says this. He says, through the finished work of the cross, he, being Jesus, made the inner sanctuary of our anatomy, our physical bodies, the holy of holies. It is in our spirit that God comes to take up residence in the new birth. Your body, your physical body, becomes now the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God moves and dwells in you. And in a mysterious way, you are in Him. Again, you're not just given a new address, but you're given a whole new home to live in and out of. Your body is the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. What a miracle! What a miracle that is. Throughout the New Testament, there is this, this language, there is this imagery of putting off the old self and putting on this kind of uh, clothing analogy or picture. And when we become made new, when the Spirit of God enters into us, when we're filled with the Spirit, we are given a new jersey to wear. This new jersey that we put on. Just think about, uh, just think about Michael Jordan, you know, in the 90s, dominating. When Michael put on his jersey... He was MJ. He was MJ without the jersey. But when he put that jersey on, he was a bull. And he was on a team. And that jersey reflected that team. You and I, when we put on this new jersey, are on a team. Yes, with your uniqueness, but now you are submitting to the team and to the one leading the team, playing your unique role in the mission of God. You are given a new Jersey and identity when you are made new in Christ Jesus. When this new jersey is given, we are made holy, chosen to belong wholeheartedly to God, consecrated, dedicated, devoted to him and his ways. And it is by this grace 
that we begin to live and walk out a new life and a new identity that's given to us for free. You just have to receive it. It's actually fascinating to watch Selah not enjoy getting her clothes put on her in the morning. She's wiggling and moving and all. I'm like, girl, and she's crying because it hurts. And I'm like, you know what? If you just stop, just stop. And let me put this on you. Life will be so much better for you and for me. And so many of us are just flailing around like a toddler acting childish and not letting God just put the jersey on that is actually for our good. Selah will flail around when she's spilled all kinds of spaghetti and food all over her outfit. She won't want us to take it off. How similar to us as adults. We're not that much different. Just surrender. So much of the, the way of Jesus is just stopping. Letting him do what he's got to do. Believing that what he's doing is good. And that is putting a new jersey on. But to wear this jersey, to be a saint, it is both a status and a vocation. It is a status and a vocation or a calling. We are called saints and we're called to be and become saints. It is a posture and a path, an identity and a calling. Now, a lot of you know, um, Chad Kern and I built a dynasty down to the Bryan YMCA a couple of years ago. Some of you don't know that. Uh, it's actually true. Yes, we are in the YMCA Hall of Fame. Um, for three years, Chad and I um, were formed in patience, working with uh, 9 to 11, 12-year-olds with a team that we started called the Goats. And um, I remember being in a game, looking at a kid on our team, like 11 or 12-year-old. And I was taking this serious. I'm like, if I'm volunteering my time and I got a little one at home, listen, you better take this serious. And I looked at this kid and I said to him, I said, just be a basketball player. There is a saying, there's this kind of a colloquial saying in basketball called, it just basically goes, hoopers hoop. Okay? And shooters shoot. Some of your artists and you're like, I don't understand the metaphor at all. Okay? T to help you out, writers write. Okay? Right? Makers make. Creators create. And players play. And hoopers hoop. And I looked at this kid and I was like, just be a basketball player. When we are given this new identity, this jersey that we are wearing assumes a function and assumes a way of life. This status assumes a way of living. Our living has to reflect our jersey. You don't wear a basketball player, you know, I mean, you don't wear a jersey as a basketball player and go play football. There's, there's incongruence there. You, you don't wear a, a football jersey and go play tennis. It's not how that works. Plus, it would be very heavy and hard to maneuver around the court. Our identity has to match our functionality or there will be disintegration and dissonance in your life. And for a lot of us, we'll get into this next week, that is where we find great challenge right now. 
Our professing belief does not match our behavior. And there's dissonance. And there's disintegration. And holiness actually is moving us towards wholeness and completeness and integration. Our status and our vocation have to align, just as players play, teachers teach, makers make, writers write, image bearers image, holy ones live holy lives. St. Teresa of Lisieux is a French nun who has a beautiful story. You should go, uh, go look her up. She died, she died at 24 years of age. Um, she's a French Carmelite nun. She says, holiness consists simply in doing God's will and being just what God wants us to be. It's that simple. Being what God wants you and I to be. This is who you and I are. And this has been God's desire and design from before you even came into existence as people. It wasn't just like God's, you know, walking with us in time going, yeah, I think it's time for you to be holy. He's had the desire from the beginning of creation and even before. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. It says this, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Much of our narratives today are rooted in existential philosophy. Um, that existence precedes our essence. Create yourself, make yourself, determine life's meaning. These are kind of, you know, lay-level ideas, but they're all kind of rooted in existential philosophy. And there is much about existentialism that I love, that I find very interesting and helpful. But Ephesians 1.4 shows us the exact opposite of the baseline of existential philosophy. That our essence as holy ones precedes our very embodied existence. God has always had holiness in mind for his people. Always. From before creation. Your essence precedes your existence. And this is what makes repentance actually so beautiful. Because when Jesus calls us to repent, he isn't just saying change moving forward. He is actually calling you and I to return home. The nature of repentance is actually return. To return to our essence. To return to who we most truly are and were meant to be from the beginning of creation. Return to being saints. I found this interesting. Did you know that the word person comes from a Latin word, personare, personare? And it means to sound or breathe through. So to be an actual person is to be breathed through. God in eternity breathes and is meant to breathe through us. Our essence is to sound or breathe through our existence. And the process of being and becoming holy, walking in holiness, living in devotion to God, is about becoming who you actually are. Where you don't have to ask the question to Google any longer. It's already been answered and given to you. Allowing God to breathe through his beloved holy ones. Now, if you want to look at the life of a modern saint, I'm a big fan of Henry Nouwen. 
Anybody Henry Nouwen fans? You read some Nouwen? Love Henry Nouwen. Wonderful. You should listen to him preach. It's great on YouTube. I passed away a while back. Um, modern saint. Beautiful life. He says this. Famous line from Nouwen. He says, From the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. The moment that you realize the truth that you are a saint, that you are a holy one, now you are faced with the call to become a holy one, to become a saint. I don't imagine that classic cars really interest many people in our community. Maybe there are a handful of you who really appreciate classic car restoration. Um, anybody? Like you're really into classic car restoration? Oh, cool. There's a handful of people. Great. Wonderful. Um, classic car restoration is a great metaphor for us. The car, usually, that a person finds is in absolute disarray. Like it looks terrible. I actually have a picture for you guys to see. Like utter disrepair. Okay? The car traditionally has been beat up by the weather, by the driver, and by other drivers. Like, that car has had a life. You know what I'm saying? But there's always some person that's walking around a junkyard or in the backyard of somebody's house in random Rockingham County that finds this old super sport that says, she's a beauty. She just needs some love. She just needs a little love. The car then belongs to a new owner and the car then is given a new engine, all new parts, new interior and a new exterior. Not just the exterior changes, everything inside of it. Totally restored. Even better than it was before. But do you know where people want to look first when we talk about classic cars? Under the hood. You go to any classic car show, guess what? All of the hoods are open, are they not? Why? People want to see under the hood because that's where the true change happened. That's where restoration began. That picture is holiness. You and I are beat up cars that bear the image of God in some way but are broken, but have beauty, but need restoration, that need transformation, that need to be restored. That is holiness. That is sanctification. You are, friends, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. God's special possession. You belong to him wholeheartedly every bit of yourself belongs to him your body your mind your heart your job your relationships your spouse your singleness your desire your money everything belongs to God wholeheartedly if in fact you are a holy one you are his possession then are able to declare because of that the praise of him who called you and I out of darkness do you know what darkness represents all throughout the scriptures separation chaos and he has called you and I into his wonderful light or into his fire or into his 
presence. You and I cannot be restored and cannot become holy without the presence of God. The tangible, manifest presence of God because the very call to be holy is a call into the presence. Saints simmer. That's a phrase I thought of this week. Saints simmer because they've been in the presence of God. To be in the presence is to be in holiness. And one of my greatest yearnings today in all of my life is that people become who they actually are and who they were intended to be. And you and I were made new to be made a saint. Not when you die, but while you are living holy ones, God's special possession. I close with this from Thomas Merton. Thomas Merton in his little autobiography or memoir, The Seven Story Mountain, has an interaction with an individual where the individual is talking to him and Merton says, what do you want, or, or this individual asks Merton, what do you want to be anyway? Merton says, I don't know. I guess what I want to be is a good Catholic. This other individual says, what you should say he told me, what you should say is that you want to be a saint. My question for you and I today is, do you want to be a saint? Do you want to be consecrated? Do you want to live a life devoted to God? We're going to take time to come to the table.